Now that we've seen that the Lord takes names, his names, important, let's consider how the Lord used certain people, named them with purpose. We've already looked at Adam, whether God named Adam or not, we don't know, whether the Holy Spirit. We talked about the name woman. I believe the most ancient of definitions goes back to man with the womb, for sure. And we notice in Genesis chapter 17, the Lord continues this emphasis on not just his name, but the names of his people as well. Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, speaking to Abraham, says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. The Lord, the Lord changed Abram's name to Abraham for a reason. The word Abram means exalted father. The word Abraham means father of a multitude, or he would be the father of many nations. And then later on in that same chapter, chapter 15, verse chapter 17, verse 15, then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Well, Sarai has, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, means my princess. Whereas Sarah means noble lady. And I, I'm not sure if that reflects the same difference that Abraham's name change did. But yet that's where the name comes from. It means noble lady. She, of course, was the mother of Israel with Abraham as the father. And then we have in Genesis chapter 32, the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel. This was brought earlier in, in our, in our um, lesson this morning. Genesis chapter 32, specifically down to verse 28. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. The word Jacob means supplanter. And of course, it, after a fashion, that's sort of what he did with his brother. When he demanded that he get his his uh, birthright, or his blessing, to give him a bowl of soup, which is interesting. But the word Israel means he who strives with God, or also meaning the prince of God. Israel was a prophetic name because God would make from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a great nation. That nation would eventually come to be called Israel, the sons of Israel, and then later, later meaning the Jewish people, meaning prince of God. Now, in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, we jump to the New Testament here. There's an interesting name change, and we don't know what the source of this change was necessarily, but it's regarding the Apostle Paul, or Saul as he was called before. In Acts chapter 13, verse 9, this was Luke who was writing the book of Acts. Up until this point, Saul was, uh, Paul was, named by, was known by the name Saul which is a Hebrew word, by the way, then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now, we don't know why his name was changed. Was it Luke by the work of, by the desire of the Spirit? Maybe. Was it Saul himself? I tend to think it was Saul because the name Paul means small or little. Paul considered himself to be the least of all the apostles, the least of God's people in general, really. And he may have named himself as a result of that. Or did the Lord have a hand in the saying? Was it the Holy Spirit 
I, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't really tell us. But Paul was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. We know that. And the Gentiles, as a rule, were speaking Greek by that time, by that point in history, as opposed to Hebrew. As far as we know, only the Jewish people spoke Hebrew. And the fact that his name was changed may have been a result of him being called an apostle to the Gentiles, to the world. And that's what we basically know him as. When you first hear the name Saul, you probably think of King Saul. But he's he's known to us today in the Lord's body as Paul for the most part. Now there's also the name of the Lord's church. It means ecclesia or the called out. We are the called out of God. We are called out of the world into the Lord. Now, there's various other terms to describe the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, this term here in Ephesians 1 is probably one of the most, one of the ones that I like to use a lot pertaining to the church. It says, He, meaning Christ, put all things under His feet, gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, it's specifically called, it says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It's specifically called a body. And I I like that description because it, it teaches us many things. We are parts of the body, just like we have different parts in our physical body that do certain specific things for us. Well, as Christians, we are part of the body of Christ, but we're all different. We all have different talents and abilities. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. There are some things that the big toe does, the little toe can't do, as we call it, the little toe. But yet, I've heard there's a whole lot of things you can't do without your little toe very well. So it's interesting how our body works together, just like the body of Christ. And there's another name used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. This is the most common term pertaining to the Lord's church. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. We were referred to this earlier as we called, they called on the name of the Lord, but here it's called the church of God. Now we know we can use the term God there because Paul explains in Acts 20 and 28 the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That teaches us God, Elohim, is talking specifically there referring to Jesus. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. The Father didn't purchase the church with his blood. Jesus did. And of course there's the term used in Romans 16 and 16 in 1 Corinthians, the churches of Christ. I believe all these terms are referring to, these are simply descriptive terms of the body of Christ pertaining to who it belongs to. It's called the church of the firstborn. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 through 23. And all these do is describe who the church belongs to. Now, here's just a, a point of trivia for you. Is there any proper name for the church? You know what I mean by proper name? I think you could call the church the temple of God. That would be a proper name for the church. And by proper, I don't mean as opposed to improper. 
I mean, it's like the official name, if you want to call it something. The temple of God pertains to the Lord's body. Or how about just the term Israel? We are Israel of the New Testament. We are circumcised in our hearts by the Spirit. As a reflection of the Old Testament circumcision, our circumcision is better, is more sure. We are circumcised just like Israel was. So to call the church Israel would be very appropriate and very right as far as I'm concerned. But you'd have to explain what that means when you use that term. Now, I want to get into this other point. Well, before I do, does anyone have any questions on anything that we've had so far this morning? Okay, we're going to change gears just a little bit here. I want to talk about how God knows His people and their names. Exodus chapter 33. We start in Exodus as we have much of our lesson. Verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. The Lord did not just know Moses. I believe there's something added when when he says, I know you by name. In other words, his attention, the Lord's attention was on Moses at this time. The Lord called him Moses at the burning bush through the angel that spoke to him there. He knew his name. He knew him by name. Now, turn to the New Testament for a moment. Matthew chapter 7. I was asked to address this passage and how it pertains to the knowledge of God. Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. Jesus says, now not, now not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, I don't think this means the Lord did not know of them. The Lord knows who are not his people as much as he knows those who are his people. As far as their existence, we have the example many times in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the judgment. The Lord knew those who had not visited him and visited the sick, visited and helped the poor. The Lord knew them. So it's not it's not saying the Lord didn't know of him. But I think it's referring to the fact the Lord has a, rep- has, a, has a relationship with those who are his people. There in Matthew 21, it's those who did all kinds of religious stuff, lots of great deeds, lots of great works. But yet the Lord will say in the end, if they're not his people, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. For I don't know you. In other words, you don't have that relationship with me that you're supposed to have. The Lord knows who his righteous are as well as unrighteous. He simply doesn't recognize them due to their relationship or lack of relationship, I should say, to him. And again, there in Matthew 25, in that same parable, he knew those who had visited the sick. He knew those who had helped the poor, who had done these good deeds. 
Because as they were doing those things, they were doing them, Jesus says, you did them to me. So he knows of both, but it's that relationship that we crave, that we want. So when God knows us by name, it's talking about that relationship we have with him. No implies this intimacy. We see this used in, in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33 verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up his people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. He reminds, Moses reminded the Lord that he knew him by name. So he knew that to be sure, but he knew Moses' name because he had a relationship with him. And so the scriptures uses the word know or knew sometimes to refer to the sexual relationships of a man, a husband, and a wife. It says in Matthew 1, speaking of Joseph, he did not know Mary because he didn't have relations yet. Because that which was in her was from the Holy Spirit. But they did have children later as a result of that relationship. I like the way Paul uses this phrase in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Got to find the right one here. Philippians 3, 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I like that phrase, that I may know him. He's talking about that special relationship that Paul wanted, that Paul craved. Thanks to Christ, he could have that. And I think the same thing pertains to us today. This is what we desire as Christians, or what we should desire, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection. This is what I think we're referring to in the word know here. According to Barnes' notes, the word knows means that I may be fully acquainted with his nature, his character, his work, and his salvation, which he has provided for us. Now, if you think about it, this particular theme this week, the goal of this is so that we may be fully acquainted or as much acquainted as our as our living in the flesh can be. This is what hopefully will be a result of these lessons, that we might truly have a relationship with God, that we're aware of Him in a much better, surer way. I've already had two comments based on the first lesson where brethren saw something in passages they never really thought about before. How do you think it feels to be assigned the topic? I learned a lot of stuff I'd never thought about before. I'm finding that to be the case more and more, and I think that's why God's Word is written like it is, so that we can, oh, now I better understand or I can appreciate what the Lord is trying to teach me. And that's something that makes the Word of God so special as opposed to other books like the Lord of the Rings, for instance. I love the Lord of the Rings, and I can tell you probably everything about that book because I've read it a dozen times since I was a teenager. But that that book's limited. God's Word is not limited. 
We learn new things all the time. And, and it's all for the goal of having a better appreciation of who God is. So we go back to that Psalm 103, 6 through 10 again, for the theme, for the whole, for the whole meeting. Each of these characteristics are applied to us as individuals. But unless we know God like God wants, we'll never receive them. Whether it's judgment, justice, mercy, or grace. Anybody have any questions or comments? Now's the time for that. A little bit surprised you've only had a few. Thus far, anyway. Just wave your hand, because maybe there's not. Okay. Now we're going to look at some of the meanings of some of the names, additional names in the Bible. In the process of my preparing this lesson, I, I ordered a book from Thomas Nelson Publishers entitled All the Names in the Bible. I've used this in addition to Strong's Concordance as well as other dictionaries to try to find these, these definitions, some of which we really don't know, but some of them we can get a pretty good idea for. And this, like all reference books, is not inspired, but anytime there are going to be some names I'm obviously not going to mention this morning because there's, there's literally thousands of them in the Bible at least. But if you want to find one later on between classes, just feel free to come up and, and look at the book. Just put it back when you're done with it. It gives some pretty interesting discussions. And so now we're going to talk about the meaning of some of these names. And, and the, the meaning behind the name is that some of us name our children. Now, Becky and I, we, we named each one of our children by names that were in the Bible. But we didn't necessarily give, give thought to the definition of those names. Just didn't think about it. This wasn't something that was on our minds, but we chose four names of names that were in the Bible. That was simply, simply our preference. But there are some today, even in the body, who have named their children with specific names based on their definitions. And I think that could be a good thing. Maybe sometimes they're hoping there will be a type of prophecy when they're referring to some name pertaining to those who have a relationship with God. Maybe that's one reason why they did. And it's worth noting that Generally speaking, the Lord does not know, no, not the Lord, the world. The world does not know our Lord by the name Joshua, which is a Hebrew name equivalent of Jesus. The world knows the Son of God by the name of Jesus for the most part, which is a Greek word. And maybe that's with purpose. We know that. Maybe God did that because the gospel, again, was intended for the whole world, not just the Jewish people. So we know him by his Greek name of Jesus, which means Savior or Joshua. It's interesting here, we have in, in Matthew chapter 1, where uh, the angels telling Joseph about the name of, of his son. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The indication to me is this was God telling Joseph what they should name the child that Mary was going to have. 
she would call his name Jesus as Savior of the world. So the name Jesus Christ means Savior anointed. The word Christ means the anointed one. Jesus Christ means Savior anointed. It's interesting that Jesus, again, as I say, is known by his Greek name. And Simon sort of gives a little bit of hint at this. Simon the prophet, I should say, in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 29. Luke 2 and 29, when Simon the prophet said, when Jesus was taken to the temple to be, to be named, says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all the peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simon knew, possibly only by inspiration, although we don't know that for sure. The Old Testament scriptures prophesied about the the gospel being preached to the Gentiles. Well, the prophet Simon emphasizes that here when Jesus was brought to be circumcised. Jesus changed Simon Peter's name to Peter in Mark chapter 3, verse 16. The name Simon means God hears. The name Peter means small rock. And maybe one of the primary reasons for that name change was to use there in Matthew 16 when Jesus is teaching, you are Peter, but on this rock, on this big rock of my, of my identity, I will build the church. Jesus was not referring to building the church on the foundation of Peter, though there are many that say that, but he was referring to his identity as the Son of God. That's what the church was built on. Now we go back to the Old Testament, and you see some of these names seem to have what I would call random definitions, and some seem to be with purpose. Going clear back to Enoch, the name Enoch means dedicated. The name Noah means rest or relief. Now whether that was some form of prophecy or whether, I don't know what the relationship was, but that's what it means. Moses, we know, means drawn out. You remember who named Moses? The daughter of Pharaoh. Why would she name him a name meaning drawn out? She drew him out of the water. That's where the name Moses came from. Of course, Joshua, we've already seen, means Savior. It means the Lord of our salvation as well. The name David means beloved. Beloved of God. Now here's one that's interesting. The name Jezebel means there is no prince. Now whether that's an allusion to her lacking, refusing God's authority or not, I don't know that, but that's what the name means. The name Isaiah means the Lord has saved. And this next one you might get a chuckle from. My wife and I did. The name Rebecca means a noose or as a young maiden would attract a man with her beauty, which is exactly what she did. I found that to be interesting. I, uh, of course, I did, wasn't assigned this topic until after her parents passed on. I'd like to know if they did that on purpose. I don't know. But that's what the name means anyway. The name Ezekiel means God will strengthen or God gives strength. The name Daniel, which is interesting, means God is my judge. But Daniel, like his three friends, as we call them, they all had Chaldean names. uh, The Assyrians wanted to change the name of their captives so that they would be more easy to assimilate into their own culture. 
Daniel's name was changed to Belshazzar, which is a Chaldean name. This is what they, they wrote and they spoke back then. It means Lord of the Straitens treasure. But then we have the other friends, Shadrach, who we, we know the other three by their Chaldean names for the most part. Shadrach means command of the god Aku. Of course, the Assyrians wanted to get all their captives to be worshiping their gods. So all these other names pertain to their idol worship. We have the name, and Shadrach's Hebrew name was Hananiah, which is Hebrew for Jehovah has been gracious. But we don't generally know him by that name. The name Meshach, the Chaldean name, means guest of a king. Mishael, as we know, as we know, know him as well, is Hebrew for who is what God is. The name Abednego is a Chaldean name that means a servant of Nebu. Nebu was one of the Babylonian gods. Azariah is Hebrew for Jehovah has helped. But as I say, we know Daniel by his Hebrew name, but we know the other three primarily by their Chaldean names, which I find interesting. Now we go to the New Testament scriptures. The name John, pertaining to the forerunner of Christ as well as the apostle, means Jehovah is gracious. Of course, we've already talked about Jesus. But speaking of Jesus and another name, turn to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This was a prophecy of Christ, the same one that the angel quoted there in Matthew 1, speaking to Joseph. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, Jesus has many names, and one of the names is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. So Jesus is rightly called Emmanuel. He is, he was, and he is, continues to be God with us. We've already looked at Simon Peter. Now this is sort of a funny one. Andrew, the Andrew name, the name of Andrew means manly. Anybody remember a character on television that was popular back in the 70s named Manly? Wasn't that the name of Mary Ingalls' husband? Laura, Laura Ingle. That was her husband named Manly, wasn't it? I find that interesting. We have James, known as the son of Zebedee. His name was Supplanter. And I did not look this up, but I wonder if James is a Hebrew, is a Gentile version of Jacob, which also means Supplanter. I didn't even think about that until just now. <laughs> now, of course, Jesus gave to James and John, two of his apostles, the name Boanerges, however you want to pronounce that, which means sons of thunder, which I think implies maybe they had a quick temper. Maybe they did a lot of yelling. I, I don't know where exactly they got that name, but that's what they were called, sons of thunder. Maybe it pertained to some a little friction that they may have caused or been a part of. We have the name Philip, means lover of horses. The name Bartholomew means son of Talmai. The name Thomas means twin. The name Matthew means gift of the Lord. 
The name James, uh, Supplant, I've already read that. There's Thaddeus, also known as Lebius Thaddeus, means large-hearted or courageous. Simon means God hears. And the name of Judas means praise, which is interesting. Judas being the one that betrayed Jesus. We have the name of Mary, as far as I know, all the Marys in the New Testament, which means their rebellion, which was not related to the Marys that I'm familiar with. The name Martha means lady or mistress. The name Lazarus means God has helped. We've already made mention of Saul and Paul, meaning ask of God, or Paul being small or little. The name Mark means Jehovah is a gracious giver and a defense. And there's one more I want to talk about here. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, where Luke's giving a preamble of his gospel of Christ when he says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. The word Theophilus means lover of God or God lover. Now, I don't know whether Luke was writing to an individual named Theophilus or if he's writing to anyone who loves God. I don't know which one. I tend to think possibly the latter, but there's really no way of knowing that. But if you remember also, he starts out his book of Acts written to the same name. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, the former account meaning, I believe, the Gospel of Luke. I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he addresses both books to the same individual or the same group of people. It certainly can apply to all of us. If we are lovers of God, we look at these and these are written for us to be sure. We're going to stop now for some more questions if you have any. I've tried to take into account the questions. We're not getting too many. (laughs) Questions or thoughts? Okay, we've got one over here. And just raise your hand or move your hand. I can't really see you very clearly without my glasses. Jake. I heard. Go ahead. Jake. Test, test, test. Nope. Jake, can uh, you go through those names real quickly again? I I kept up with you till you got to Philip. I could not hear her. She has to. Uh... That's why I couldn't hear. <laughs> she asked that you go through the names again after Philip. After Philip, okay. Yep. Speaking of Philip, we don't like to hear that term used in our society today. There be Philip, Philip and Bartholomew. Yeah, I know. Well. Philip, lover of horses, and Bartholomew means son of Talmai. Thomas means twin. Am I going too fast? Matthew means gift of the Lord, which of course would be a good name for any follower of God. To the parents, James means supplanter, as I said, possibly the same name as Jacob. I, I didn't think about that till. I just read it. Thaddeus means large-hearted or courageous. 
Simon means God hears. And there were, of course, two Simons and the apostles. And Judas means praise, which is different from his actions for sure. Able to get them all? Okay, good. So you're welcome. Somebody back here? Yep. Testing. Woke up my glasses. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, on uh, James and John, do you think there's a connection there to the Sons of Thunder back to Luke 9:54, where they were wanting to uh, command fire to come down from heaven and consume those people that weren't with Jesus? I think it could very well be that perhaps they were quick to action or quick to overaction. And that, that may be part of the reason why the Lord changed their names. Excellent point. Anybody else? Well, we're going to go on then. I um, Ever since I had my LASIK surgery, I have to take my glasses off to read more easily. I can read with them on, but... It's clearer when I have my glasses off. It's not like it was before my surgery. Remember, I had those Coke bottle lenses for eyeglasses. So I'm very thankful for the surgery. Now I want to talk about what I, what I think might be one of the most important aspects of this lesson. And important, not because I'm bringing it. Because God considers it important. And that's the importance of our name. Because we are known by our names in regard to having a reputation, good and bad. Solomon dealt with this at least twice in the Proverbs. Solomon chapter 22, verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. And then we go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. That's one of my favorite quotes when we have a birthday party for the grandchildren. It was important for those who wanted to be elders, who, who were considered being shepherds in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 7, 3 and 7, having a good reputation. And that good reputation was not just regarding the Lord's people. It was regarding those in the world so that we might have a good testimony from our neighbors. That's why it's important. And there are many names I could give you now that you, you would just have automatic reactions to. How about Job? Did Job have a good name? I believe he did. That's why I believe his friends could really find no fault with him because he had a good name. They knew about who he was and who his works were. So they tried conjecture. They tried to assume he had some secret sin that was hidden. Which is why they, they said, this is why God is cursing you, cursing your life. But that tells me he had a good name. And of course he had a good name to God. God knew the kind of man he was. He was a mature man, a perfect man in all his generations. But yet he also had a good name from his community, from his friends, possibly from even enemies that he had. This is why they could not figure out what, why the wrong was happening to him. There's another name I want you to think about in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15. Speaking of a good name. Paul says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, 
and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also may submit to such, to everyone who works and labors with us. Did Stephanus and his household have a good name? What was their reputation? As serving the saints. They were servants of the Lord. And interesting enough, the name Stephanus means crowned. And so they had a reputation for that. How good is it for us to be known as being a servant of the Lord? And I'm not simply talking about elders or evangelists. I'm talking about just brothers and sisters, Christians and saints. And this is why this is one of the most important points in this lesson. Because something must precede us having a good name. And that's our life. Our actions. Now the Bible is filled with examples upon example of saints whose names were known for good or for bad. If I name the name Abel to you, what do you think about? You think about a righteous man who died as a result of giving God a sacrifice that God required. He had faith. That's what you think about. He was a man of faith. Now, interesting enough, the the name Abel means breath or vapor, which is what the name spirit means, breath or vapor. But then we have the name Cain. What do you think about when you hear the name Cain? You think about a man who slew his brother because God did not receive Cain's sacrifice and he was angry and he killed his brother as a result. That's that's his name. That's what we remember Cain for. We've already talked about Moses and David. There's another name here in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. You know, have you ever considered the Lord chose the parents of his son and of the forerunner of his son very carefully and well. They were not chosen at random. They were chosen for a reason. And this is why John's parents were chosen to raise up John the Baptist. Chapter 1 of Luke, verse 1. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So what kind of name did they have? Well, certainly to the Holy Spirit and to Luke, they had names that were righteous before God. God knew them. But they also, I'm certain, were known for that by those around them. They were known for that, to be sure. The name Zacharias means remembered of Jehovah. The name Elizabeth means God is my oath. Both those names are very appropriate, I think. There's the name Nathaniel in John 1 and 47, which means given of God. Jesus referred to Nathaniel as a man in whom there is no guile. Giver of given of God. Now here's interesting. We have the names Ananias and Sapphira. If I mention their names to you, instantly you know what I'm talking about, don't you? They had a name for what? Probably at least greed and hypocrisy. They were Christians, but yet 
They wanted to appear like all their brethren who were selling land and giving the money to the church, to the apostles. But yet, they tried to lie about it. Well, the name Ananias means Jehovah is gracious and Sapphira means beautiful. There's the name of Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, verse 36, which means, interesting enough, a gazelle. And then what kind of a name? Well, I, I forgot to mention. What, kind of, what do you think about when I mention the name Dorcas? What's the first thing you think about? I think about her good deeds. Her making cloaks for widows, for those in need. That's, what, what a great name she had. She was known for that name. Not for the definition of the name, but for her life. And then consider Acts chapter 10, a man that we have talked about a lot, I'm sure, in various lessons. Verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So what was the name of Cornelius known to by God? A lot. A devout man, a good man, a worshiper of God. He was not a proselyte. He wasn't converted to Judaism, but he did worship the God of the Jews. He was one of the Gentiles who did by nature the things in the law without the law. And I'm pretty sure his neighbors, his fellows knew who he was. They knew the kind of man that he was, for sure. That was his name. That's what he was known for. So now we have to ask the question, what is your name known for? What are you known for? When someone hears your name, what do they think about? Now this is probably something that you cannot answer sincerely by yourself because you have, you have a tendency, as we all do, to overlook our faults, to overlook what we see in the mirror and try to see what we want to see. But this is an answer, this is a question that our friends and our neighbors and our brothers and our sisters can answer, to be sure. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a place for self-examination. Paul told the Corinthian brethren to examine themselves as to whether they are in the faith or not. So it's good to examine ourselves. But this kind of an answer really needs to come from those who know you. What do they say of you? You might be surprised at some of the answers. You might be shocked. And in a crowd this size, you might even be ashamed. But yet, they're the ones that see our life. They see who we really are. This, this, is, one of, this is a side note. This is one of the blessings with being in one another's homes at various opportunities, whether it's when the body meets there for a Bible study or their Lord's Day assembly or they just meet with me as friends. When you're in your own home, you're yourself for the most part. So people will see you as you really are a lot of times as a result of being in your home, to be sure. You know, if you think about it, your name or your reputation, as we're using it as, is the one thing in life you have total control of. Now, there are exceptions for those who have mental and physical disabilities, for sure. But for the most part, it's the one thing that we totally control because it's about our actions and our thoughts and our attitudes. 
There are many names here. If I were to name you by name, that would bring up certain thoughts in people's minds, to be sure. I think about names of those past saints over the generations that we've known. Go to the early days of this camp out. I could name you names and certain things would come to your mind. And for the most part, we're talking about good things. They were known for their blank, fill in the blank. For the sake of embarrassing anyone, I'm not going to do that, but, but think about that. So, it's good to think about what others think of you. Sometimes you may have to ask, and hopefully they'll be honest with love, to be sure. Now, another question I have is, when is a good time to work on your name? As soon as you recognize it. As soon as you recognize the need. As a matter of fact, it could be argued, the later you wait, the harder it is. If you've lived your life in a manner that gives you a bad name, the longer you do that, the harder it is to live, to live that out, to get out from under that. So obviously, as early as possible, when we first hear about the Lord and His gospel. Now, how does one develop a good name? Well, consider those names that we brought to our mind who had good names. Household of Stephanus. How was their name developed? They were not known as the servants of saints when they were baptized. It took some time. And they, they probably began working on that immediately. I love the example of Lydia when, when she was baptized. One of her first things to do, unless there's other stuff that we don't have written, was to invite Paul and Silas to her house. And that's one thing she was known for, was her hospitality. And I've often wondered, in that same town, probably the same congregation, where the, um, the Philippian jailer was converted in his household, here was Lydia, and we don't know whether she was a widow or single, What we just don't know, but what kind of response do you think she would give that family that was acquainted with idolatry, but now they're Christians? I can see them maybe walking in the same meeting place. You know how sisters act. Oh, what lovely children you have. Great to have you a part of the body, being an encouragement to them. I've known many, many brothers and sisters over the years that were like that. They just could not wait to meet you, to share their love for you, to show their hospitality, to show their true concern. What a joy those people are. That's what their reputations are. And it started for many of them, most of them, when they first became Christians. The name Stephanus is a good name for us to emulate, for sure. Now, it's interesting, it talks about they were known for as servants. So it's not just Stephanus. It probably includes his wife, possibly his children, and possibly his household. Maybe he had servants. But the whole household was, was known for that, for serving the saints. Now, turn to Acts chapter 16. I love this example. A man named Timothy. What was Timothy known for before he went with Paul? He was known for something. Here we see a good hint at this. Acts 16 verse 1. Then he came to Derbe in Lystria. Behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. But his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystria and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him to go 
on with him. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the region, but they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now it says he had a good reputation of the brethren. We don't know how old he was. He was old enough to have earned that reputation. Probably at least, at the very minimum, a middle to older teenager, maybe a young man. Now how did he build up his name? Well, it doesn't say, but there's plenty of evidence here. He was known among the churches at probably at least Derby and Lystra, which is why I think both those names are mentioned. Maybe he went to different churches there and, and spoke and he taught and he preached the word of God. All that time he was learning a name. He was, excuse me, he was building his name, possibly as a teacher, probably as a servant. And why did Paul want to take him on his work? Because he knew his reputation. The brethren spoke well of him. They spoke well of him for a reason. There's a reason why they did. Now, who do you, what do you think about when you think about Aquila and Priscilla? I think in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, we know that Paul met them in Corinth. They also were tent makers, as was Paul, helping provide for his needs. But here in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, Paul's closing his letter to the church at Rome. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila and my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their own necks for my name and whom not only I give thanks but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Well, they're known here for two things. They're known for risking their lives for Paul's sake. He doesn't go into the detail as to how, but they were known for that. And they were also known for the church that met in their home. They were a, a godly couple of faith, known for that. How many godly couples can you think about in your mind now who are like that? I, there are many. They're, they're scattered all over the world, at least the places I've been. They're certainly here in the United States. Godly couples who have a reputation for being hospitable, being lovers of good things, but perhaps being leaders in the body of Christ. That's what they're known for. Something else that Priscilla and Aquila were known for in Acts chapter 18 was they took a man who was mighty in the scriptures, but all he knew was the baptism of John, and they preached the word of God to him, and they helped him understand that John was a forerunner of the Christ who did come and who did die on the cross, who did become Savior of the world. And as a result of that, Apollos became a follower of Christ. Now, another question is, what does it require to build a good name? It requires a humble spirit. Because we don't want a good name because of what we want brethren to think highly of us. We want brethren to think about God. As Paul says, be followers of me as I follow Christ. That's what our emphasis should always be. I was talking with a brother earlier in our break. He pointed out something that I, that I think is right in the scriptures. Jesus always referred to people to his father. When they tried to praise him, he always referred to people to God, his father, for sure. That showed his humble spirit. We must have a love for the body to have a good name. This is one of the many lessons I learned from my brother Bill Hensley many years ago. 
He said an evangelist has to love the church in order to serve the church. That's one of the many lessons that have gone down I've learned over the years that I've tried to apply. You have to love the church, and not just as an evangelist, as a Christian. Like the household of Stephanaeus, I guarantee you they love the body of Christ. That's what it takes to have a good name. It takes a desire to serve. And with that, a desire to work. And sometimes it takes a desire, a willingness to be inconvenienced. Because things happen at bad times. That's simply part of life. And going along with loving the body, if you want a good name in the Lord, you need to prioritize the Lord's kingdom. Brethren in the world need to see that you think it's important, that you value it as important. And you show that by your works, by your spirit, by your activity, by your participation in all aspects of the church. For the men regarding the public meetings, but also for the sisters who work and serve the church. I I remember there are many saints. I remember back in the 80s when I was just a little evangelist living in Des Moines. I, I, I met so many godly people. I'd never been around that many good people before. The first church I was acquainted with in Pond Creek, Tennessee, was a very small congregation. And that's not to belittle their faith either. They had a lot of faith, and they still do. But I am so thankful I've had a chance to be met and influenced by God's people all over this nation, as well as in the Philippines and in Spain that I've been. Now, it's interesting when you think about it, about the percentage of people in this class that already have a good name. You've already have it established. And so I'm going to emphasize this for the younger people. They need to start working on their good name as young people. Because the longer they do that and working good, the better it is to establish that name. And they need to be wary of ruining their name at a young age. Sometimes Christians do things younger that they recognize later as foolish, but it's harmed the rest of their life. It's hard to get out of having a bad name. For sure, to be called. And once you have a bad name, it can be difficult to change it. No matter your actions, it can be difficult. But yet, once you have a good name, how long does it take to ruin that name? Not very long. So we have to always be wary and be aware of the danger of causing people to blaspheme the Lord by our doing. We're going to stop for questions here just for a minute. We've only got about five minutes left for the whole class. Calvin over here, I can see him without my glasses. You were talking... Oh. You, you were talking earlier about the names for the church, so I'm a little late on this, but in Acts 25 and 26, it is referred to, I think, as the way. Mm-hmm. It is uh, capitalized. Yes. And so Felix Festus and Agrippa were aware of a group of people known as the way, and I, we have no way of knowing why that didn't uh, go on. The only thing I can think of is it didn't include the name of Christ uh, to give him primary glory. Yeah. But it's interesting that I've always thought about that the way. And that may be 
from Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe they were called that because of that, for sure. One more comment at the most, then we're going to close this. Because I've got some other, i got a whole seven pages of notes left. We're going to continue here. I was asked to address this new name in Isaiah chapter 62. I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as I can here. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. Now, some, some think that name may have been referring to the church as Christians. They were first called Christians in Antioch. And the word Christians was at first used as a type of a slur, which is also, I think, where the name Jew came from. I don't know if that's the name we're talking about here, but the name that was referred to earlier from Revelation 2 and 17 and 3 and 12, to him that overcomes, I think refers to saints who have already died, will get a new name that only they will know. If Isaiah 62 and 2 is referring to that, that means we don't know that name yet. If that's referring to the same one, it may be referring to Christians, but the ones in the Revelation letter is referring to those that overcome the world after they have probably died. Uh, I, I got a lot of definitions here. I'm not going to get to this. Uh, it's already mentioned last, yesterday in a great lesson. If we think about who accompanied Paul in his first journey, we don't generally think about the name Joseph. We think about the name Barnabas. Barnabas was known, as it was said earlier, as a encourager. And Barnabas did many things to prove that. He was called that by the apostles, apparently, by in Acts chapter four, verse thirty-six, known as the son of the as the uh, son of encouragement. Uh, name names are also important because we we I think it's good to know our brethren's names for a lot of reasons. But when you pray for brethren, don't you use their names generally? Hopefully, if somebody says, "Just pray for that evangelist out in Arizona," hopefully you you pray for Jay. Hopefully you know my name. I think it's good that we know each other's names. We, we remember these names in our prayers. And I, I want to quote from a song that come from a, 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 a television show that I had, as I had problems. This isn't related to the show, though. Think of this song in related to the church. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries Sure, it would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. What a great passage regarding the church. Don't we want to be known by our brothers and our sisters? Don't we want to be welcomed? And we're known by the names that we have. I like to do business with companies, preferably that are smaller, that know me by name. Hello, Mr. Graham. Although the, the guy who owns the motel in Santa Fe, he started calling me Reverend, and I wasn't going to have that. And then he called me Mr. Graham, and I said, well, just call me Jay, and I'll call you Tasha. So he's, he's Indian descent. And there's a lot more we can get into, but I'm going to close with a poem that was given to me by Catherine Manning, who got it from Betty, Betty Roton. This was a poem written by Adolph Davidson in 1913. She ransacked every novel and dictionary too, but nothing ever printed for her baby's name would do. 
She hunted appellations of present and the past, and this is what they christened him at last. Julian, Howard, Egbert, Ulysses, Victor, Paul, Argonon, Marcus, Cecil, Sylvester, George, McFall. But after all her trouble, she'd taken for his sake. His father called him Buster, and his, sister, his schoolmates called him Jake. Thank you very much. I thought you'd get a kick out of that. I certainly did. <laughs> <laughs>